0: Welcome to this episode of Risk On Air. Making a will remains one of the most likely reasons for an individual to seek the assistance of a solicitor. With an aging population, more wills are being made and changed by people of advanced ages when illness or disability are much more likely to affect a testator's capacity. In this podcast, Jen McMillan, Legal Practice Consultant at LawCover, and accredited specialist in Wilson Estates, and Martin Gorick, lecturer at UTS and the College of Law in Wilson Estates, and Wilson Estates mediator, will discuss key cases and the risk issues associated with capacity, along with practical measures that solicitors can take to ensure that the will is valid and the risk to the solicitor is minimized. Since recording this podcast, the decision in the case of Estate of Beryl Lee Horden, deceased, Homersham and Carr has been appealed, with the Court of Appeal finding that the willmaker had testamentary capacity, even though she held a false belief about a beneficiary of her previous will. The evidence of the solicitor, who was described in the first instance decision as conscientious and careful, carried significant weight in the appeal. The Court of Appeal decision is Carr and Homersham, 2018, New South Wales Court of Appeal, 65.
1: Thanks for joining us today, Martin.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Jenny.
1: I think one of the trickiest things for lawyers who take instructions for wills is knowing what they need to do in situations where testamentary capacity might come under doubt. And this year we've actually had a couple of really interesting published decisions that we're going to talk about today. The first one is the case of Ryan and Dalton. This was a a case where um, a fairly elderly man um, had three children from his marriage, um, but he'd been in a long-term relationship with his de facto. He made a will about three years before he died, where he left everything to his children and didn't leave anything to his de facto. And then about a year before he died, he consulted the same solicitor who'd prepared the previous will and told her that he wanted to make a change and make some provision for his de facto spouse. Martin, can you perhaps talk about what the evidence was in this case, where the children later contested the final will that was made at a time when Mr Ryan was in his late 80s on the basis that he lacked testamentary capacity?
2: Uh, Sure. Happy to do that, Jenny. Uh, He was... In his very late 80s, in fact, he was 89 years of age when he made the 2013 will and it was by that will that he divided his bounty up equally between his three adult children and his de facto spouse, whereas the will he made in 2011, it was just to his three children equally and he was 87 when he made that will. So he was certainly of advanced years when both of the wills were made, though it's apparent from the judgment that there was no issue about the deceased Mr Ryan's capacity when he made the 2011 will. So the only issue to be determined in the proceedings was whether or not he had capacity at the time he made the 2013 will What's interesting, of course, is that Ms Dalton, the solicitor who drafted the 2013 will and attended on the deceased for the purposes of having that will executed, was also the solicitor who took instructions from the deceased in relation to the 2011 will and had been his solicitor between 2011 and 2013. And possibly before that as well. Mm. And the reason why Ms Dalton is the defendant in the proceedings is because the deceased appointed her to be his executor under the 2013 will. She took no gift under the 2013 will, although it appears from the evidence that there may have been a charging clause in the 2013 will, as you would expect. Uh, So far as the capacity issue is concerned, what makes the case interesting, and from Justice Kuntz's point of view, what caused him what he described himself as anxious consideration uh, in his judgement was that there was a significant body of lay and medical evidence relied upon by the three children in support of their attack on the 2013 will, and there was the evidence of Ms Dalton as a legal practitioner who took instructions for the 2013 will that he had capacity at the time he executed that will. So the trial judge, Justice Kuntz, was confronted with competing professional expert evidence as to capacity. And I think it's worth noting that uh, it's a question of fact for a judge on a testamentary capacity case as to whether or not the deceased test date or had the requisite capacity. Uh, and lawyers, of course, as part of their job, are assessing people's capacity all the time, though the matters they ought to take into account depend, of course, on the particular transaction that's under consideration. Mm -hmm. The facts are dealt with in a fairly extensive judgment and it's probably not necessary to dig deep into all of them. Uh, However, uh, I think... What is relevant and certainly something that Justice Kuntz focused upon in some detail is the evidence Ms Dalton gave mm. both by way of sworn affidavit evidence uh, and uh, oral evidence in the witness box and the extent to which, uh, according to Justice Kuntz, Ms Dalton was able to to support her view that the deceased had capacity at the time of the 2013 will is what uh, Justice Quince focused upon Mm -hmm. and what culminated in what is certainly now in legal circles um, a very significant postscript to the judgment, which I know we'll be coming to shortly. Um, I wonder if it might be helpful just before we come to the postscript to just uh, refer to some aspects of Ms. Dalton's evidence about her attendances on the deceased that Justice Kuntz thought were significant uh, and in some respects uh, thought were um, uh, insufficient to enable him to find.
1: I think that would be good because my reading of this case is that for a lot of solicitors they would look at what Ms Dalton did in this case and would compare it to their own practice and not necessarily consider that they would have done things terribly differently. So so I think it, it's really worthwhile looking at what aspects of what Ms Dalton's practice were that attracted some criticism.
0: All
2: right. Perhaps a good place to start then is that part of Justice Quince's judgment where he actually reproduces uh, significant slabs of Ms Dalton's affidavit evidence, which, of course, was her evidence in chief, and also her oral evidence, which, of course, was evidence that was adduced in the course of cross-examination and... uh, One aspect of her evidence, of course, focused on the occasion when she took instructions Mm -hmm. for the will.
1: It's worth noting here that at this time, Mr Ryan was living in a nursing home and because of mobility problems, he wasn't able to see Ms Dalton in her legal office and they organised to meet, as I recall, at a coffee shop?
2: It it was a coffee shop in Orange and that's where Ms Dalton's practice is and uh, it was in the Orange uh, area that the deceased and his de facto spouse lived as well. And uh, uh, I I agree what might otherwise have been perhaps a curiosity in the facts uh, was explained by the fact that he could not attend on Ms. Dalton in her office because it was the top of a steep flight of stairs. I think what's significant is, uh, in the context of the timeline, uh, Ms. Dalton took instructions from the deceased on the 17th of January 2013. A few days before that, the deceased's de facto spouse, Deirdre, had contacted Ms. Dalton to arrange
1: Mm. for the
2: attendance by Ms Dalton on the deceased.
1: And I guess that's a bit of a red flag, isn't it, when it's not the willmaker themselves who's contacting Uh, the lawyer?
2: I I think it is. Uh, And if it isn't at the time, it really should become a red flag if it becomes apparent that one of the changes or uh, one of the provisions of the proposed new will are going to benefit the person. Who did the
1: contacting?
2: The appointment. Yeah. Of course, uh, uh, the deceased de facto spouse also took the deceased to the cafe. But whenever there's a, a frail or incapacitated person in the physical sense, it's kind of unsurprising that a family mm-hmm. member will help. And it is apparent that uh, Ms. Dalton uh, waited until the de facto had left the cafe before she took instructions from the deceased. And And that was a a prudent thing to do uh, and quite clearly the right thing to do in the circumstances. However, at the time that the appointment was arranged by the de facto and that took place in the course of a telephone conversation with Ms Dalton, the de facto informed Ms Dalton that the deceased could no longer see well enough to read or write. Now, that's a pretty significant indicator that a client is suffering from a disability, Mm -mm. Uh, he's sight impaired, Uh, and uh, I think the significance of that is starkly brought into relief uh, when it's understood that after the draft will had been prepared, it was put in an envelope and it was posted to the deceased care of his de facto spouse's mm. home address, inviting him in the covering letter to consider the terms of the draft will.
1: Yeah, so uh, you know who's going to be reading the will. Exactly,
2: <laughs> and we know who's going to convey the contents of the draft yes. will to the will maker. This wasn't necessarily, incidentally, something that Justice Kunz. ..focused on in great Mm. detail. And I guess
1: it doesn't really go to capacity as pleaded. It
2: doesn't. It's it's potentially a suspicious circumstance. Exactly. It's certainly uh, one of a number of red flags that were being waived at the time that Ms Dalton was taking instructions. She gives evidence in her affidavit that Justice Quince reproduces in his judgement about the deceased having been bright, happy and talkative. And indeed, she gives evidence of a particular conversation that the two of them had at the cafe about uh, the deceased's wartime experiences in New Guinea in the 1940s. Mm. And one has to assume that she adduced this evidence in chief because she thought it was an indicator of his uh, capacity to communicate. Uh, And she says it was also something she relied upon in proceeding with confidence to take instructions for a will. Mm. The plaintiff's submissions addressed this evidence. Remember, the plaintiffs are the adult children who take under the prior will. And the plaintiffs said this in relation to Ms Dalton's evidence about the conversation with the deceased as to his wartime experiences that the deceased could tell stories about his war service or could otherwise talk about simple things was exactly the sort of thing that people with dementia could do. Mm -hmm. Their ability to do so says nothing about their executive function. So the point that was being made, and it was uh, supported by some expert medical evidence that was adduced in the course of the hearing... Is that if a an elderly client or any client indeed uh, is chatty, bright, and bubbly, and can talk about uh, experiences long ago, it may tell you nothing more other than that they have a good long-term memory. Yes, it's not determinative of their capacity.
1: And it really doesn't it go work. to any part of the Banks and Goodfellow And
2: it does not. So uh, in one sense it was irrelevant evidence. Mm-hmm. In another sense it could have indicated that Ms Dalton was relying on something that was not a proper indicator of testamentary capacity. She then, in this part of her affidavit that's reproduced by uh, Justice Quince in his judgement, made reference to what she said was a discussion with the deceased about the changes he wanted to make to his will. Critical evidence. Then the only evidence she gives of that discussion, and she puts it in the first person, is about the other change he made to the will apart from dispositions, which was a new executor appointment. Under his prior will, his three children took and would also administer his estate. Under this new will, he was giving instructions for he wanted to appoint somebody else to be executor. She gave no direct evidence at all, Ms Dalton, as to precisely what the first person conversation was. With respect to the change in dispositions.
1: Mm. Which was adding a beneficiary who hadn't previously been in the will. Indeed. And
2: again, at first blush, in fairness to Ms Dalton, she knew the deceased at least for a period of three years, possibly more. The evidence discloses that uh, the de facto spouse was also a client of Ms Dalton's. One has to infer uh, that she knew they had been in a de facto relationship since about 1990.
1: And it's not an odd thing to do, add your de facto partner into your will.
2: Some lawyers may well take the view it was the right thing to yes. do. Yes.
1: Well, you'd certainly be leaving yourself open to a family provision claim yeah. if you didn't.
2: Exactly. So uh, I can imagine if I w- if I put myself in Miss Dalton's shoes that she thought this was uh, an indicator of someone weighing up the moral claims on his or her bounty, as we know, mm. one of the elements of the test in Banks and Goodfellow. However, it's just not apparent from her evidence that she sought from him any detailed explanation for this change. Uh, or so that she
1: didn't ask the why question? She
2: didn't ask the why question, nor did she go on to explain what again, would probably be an obvious consequence for somebody who wasn't in any way incapacitated. But it meant that his children were going to get a quarter instead of a third. Mm. Uh, And uh, Justice Quince took the view she hadn't taken sufficient steps to satisfy herself that he fully understood what he was doing. Justice Quince did then, referring to the affidavit evidence given by Ms Dalton... He referred to some evidence that she gave in the witness box in response to what appears to have been what the judge considered anyway to be some critical aspects of the evidence that she gave in cross-examination. She conceded it was important for her to know that the deceased was in a nursing home at the time she took instructions, and she did know that. She'd mm-hmm. been informed of that fact. Uh, it was a red flag, but there was no indication that she took any extra or further steps to satisfy herself about capacity compared to the steps that she would have taken if it had been any client. Mm-hmm. The other matter that the judge referred to is a concession she made that she knew he was vision impaired and she'd assumed from what the de facto had told her that he could no longer read and write, but no indication that she approached her attendances on the deceased any differently, despite having been uh, seized of that piece of information. In cross-examination, Ms Dalton conceded that she was not aware of the Law Society's guidelines Mm. concerning the approach to clients whose capacity... Is in doubt. Um, and whilst that publication by the Law Society, I think it's known as When a Client's Capacity is in Doubt, a practical guide for solicitors, it was a, a document that the medico legal expert Dr. Widgeratney himself referred to yeah. in his report. And the it's cli- a
1: really important resource. Actually. It's a,
2: an important resource, and Justice Kuntz is implying, if not saying explicitly, that a solicitor who isn't astute to and aware of and learns from that document um, isn't perhaps as well prepared as they might otherwise be. Probably if there's one issue in particular that the judge focused on, it was the absence of what are referred to in his judgment As open ended questions Mm. having been asked of the deceased by uh, Ms. Dalton. Uh, I think it's important to, for all lawyers, to be clear about what is meant by open or open ended questions. Uh, In the parlance, uh, there are often also references to closed questions. Um, My take
1: on that is that a closed question is one that only requires a yes or no answer. Is that
2: right? That's exactly right. So having worn a barrister's hat for many years, um, uh, it's something that was drilled into me as part of uh, uh, the way an advocate should conduct himself in court. Uh, And open questions are ones that invite the person being questioned to respond in a lucid and narrative way. Uh, For example, uh, if it comes to a a complex or controversial clause in a will, let's say it's a, a testamentary discretionary trust, I could read it out and then say to my client, now, do you understand what that means, Mr Ryan? If Mr Ryan were to say yes, he would be responding to a closed question.
1: So how could you reframe that as well, a open I, question?
2: Well, I would say now, um, I know that was pretty dense, that paragraph, Mr Ryan. Could you tell me what you understand that gift in your draft will to mean? Yes. And I would then, as a professional, as a legal practitioner, assess from his response the extent to which he truly understood it. And if red flags had been waving around in the course of my attendance on that client in that scenario we're discussing, I would, of course, be making a very careful file note, not only of my questions but also my client's answer. So it would enable me to assess his understanding by asking him, that open question. Mm.
1: And not just you. It enables a court to assess if it comes to a capacity case, doesn't it? it?
2: It does indeed. There was a what I thought a terrific example given by Justice Quince in his judgment by reference to a New South Wales Supreme Court of Appeal decision It was the judgment of Justice Campbell in Dulavirus, D O U L A V E R A S, and D A H E R. I won't bother with the citation. But in that extract from the judgment of Justice Campbell in Dulavirus's case, Justice Campbell referred to evidence given by two solicitors, a Mr. Hurigan and a Mr. Smith, on separate occasions about the capacity of a Mrs Darr to understand various transactions she had entered into, uh, which transactions were affected by documents, which each of those solicitors had witnessed. And each of those solicitors had given evidence that they had satisfied themselves that uh, Mrs Dar knew and understood the legal operation and effect of the documents that she had signed. And this is what, uh, I think it's worth reading out, this is what Justice Campbell said. A solicitor who gives a detailed and careful explanation to someone sitting on the other side of the desk might form the view that that person understood the transaction If the person remained silent during the explanation, looked the solicitor in the eye during the explanation, periodically nodded in the course of the explanation, and then when asked at the end of that explanation whether it had all been understood, the client also nodded. So the Justice Campbell was saying, I can see in those circumstances why a solicitor would think that the client had understood what had been uh, imparted to the client. And then Justice Campbell gives this alternative scenario. Alternatively, a solicitor might form the view that the client understood everything on the basis that the client on the other side of the desk periodically asked questions that related to the subject matter. So, in that situation, a legal practitioner who's having an engaged conversation rather than Mm. giving a lecture, Mm. having an engaged conversation with the client is not only able to form a view about the client's capacity to know and understand and appreciate the legal operation and effect of whatever the document is that they're signing, but then a judge at a trial is able To look at the view the solicitor came to about the client's capacity and if it was only based on a nod Mm -hmm. a judge is going to be less convinced of the accuracy of the solicitor's view than if the solicitor's evidence discloses that the client was asking informed questions responding to open questions so i think really one of the key factors and Perhaps you'd like to cut to the postscript now (laughs) to Justice Quinton's judgment, but one of the key factors in this judgment is how critical a solicitor's evidence of the communications with the client is to an overall determination. And how
1: important that it's a two-way street. It's got to
2: be a two-way street. And when you think about it, how can a, a legal practitioner with absolute confidence... Be certain that their client has understood everything, unless it's a sophisticated client, a professional litigant, like an in-house solicitor from an insurance company mm. uh, who has farmed work mm. out to an external different firm. Scenario then you, you would doing? make lots of assumptions uh, and you'd rely on them to tell you if they didn't. But when you have
1: eighty-nine-year-old Mr. Ryan who
2: can't even see, yes, yeah, can't walk upstairs.
1: Yeah, I think. I think it's good that we cut to Kunz's postscript now because Kunz made some very direct comments addressed to the legal profession at large about what he thinks it would be reasonable for a court to expect a solicitor to have done.
2: Yes, a little unusual, really. I, yeah. I can't recall that often having seen... No,
1: and I think... But... As solicitors, we ignore this at our peril.
2: It's not points <laughs> bulletin, isn't it? <laughs> yes,
1: exactly, exactly. And my reading of it is that he set the bar fairly high and possibly higher than I would have expected.
2: Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, when does the bar get... Too high? Perhaps when we get to our next case we can look at that and Mm. uh, Justice Rob, I know in the next case nuances things differently. It's nevertheless not a bad checklist Mm. when red flags are flying. Yeah.
1: Uh, So I think we should go through each of his points. What do you say? uh,
2: I'm I'm more than happy to do that. So looking at um, paragraph uh, 107, uh, the first... uh, point that Justice Quint makes is that the client should always be interviewed alone and that if an interpreter is required, ideally, the interpreter should not be a family member or proposed beneficiary. Uh, that would go to suspicious circumstances yeah. as well as very capacity sensible. and undue influence issues. Yeah. It's very sound advice. Um, sometimes I think it's probably a bit challenging. Um, I remember in practice becoming aware of a situation that cropped up in Coffs Harbour about 10 years ago. An elderly gentleman was literally wheeled into a solicitor's office uh, by a younger person in circumstances where there was no appointment and the younger person asked the receptionist if it was possible for a solicitor to attend upon the elderly gentleman urgently Uh, for the purposes of making a will. The receptionist uh, asked this person who was in charge of the elderly person to have a seat. The solicitor came out and agreed to see the elderly gentleman without the carer being present at the time of the conference. The carer insisted that she accompany the elderly gentleman, into the conference. The solicitor insisted that she stay put and the solicitor in front of this carer asked the elderly gentleman what he would like to do. And the elderly gentleman said, I'll leave it to her. And the solicitor said, I think in the circumstances what I would prefer to do is make a time for a conference and invite you to come back if you can give me your details. The elderly gentleman said very little. The young woman or the woman who had wheeled him in wheeled him straight out. Mm. About 18 months later, it became apparent she had visited three firms with this elderly gentleman. One firm had agreed to see the elderly gentleman while she was present Mm. and he died, he had made a will and there was litigation. Yes. So I think sometimes it requires a degree of forcefulness and confidence.
1: It does. And I think it's one of the things that the longer you're in practice, the more comfortable you get at, at doing is telling the clients what's acceptable to you for your to meet your I, own professional standards. I think
2: that's right. Yeah. And if it means losing a client... So bad. Um, ..I think you have to suck that up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do. I so do. that's the
1: first point.
2: Yeah, and look, the second point that, that Justice Quince makes in paragraph one hundred and seven follows on from the first point. He says a solicitor should always consider capacity and the possibility of undue influence, if only to dismiss it in first cases. Yeah, um, uh, in most cases, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, look, I, I think it's 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 much more apparent in some instances than others that there might be a risk mm. of undue influence mm. or... And he's
1: not suggesting that we um, ignore the presumption of capacity.
2: And I think that's terribly important. Mm-hmm. And there are questions of respect for the client. Yeah. Uh, there's client autonomy and their dignity to bear in mind. To assume that they're frail and vulnerable just because they look like they're frail and vulnerable is to ignore that common law presumption Uh, And, of course, there are many uh, well-meaning carers and family members brimful of bona fides and good intentions who help the elderly in circumstances where they need help. So I think, yes, it requires a little bit of diplomacy, but if you've got a relative or a carer clinging to a client or potential client like a limpet, Uh, and answering questions for the client, it's a huge red flag. Absolutely. Uh, And if you see that that elderly client is very acquiescent in that situation, I would suggest that's yet another red flag. Mm -hmm. So uh, to the extent that Justice Quince is saying be astute to the dynamics, Uh, for example, that someone who accompanies the client is going to take a benefit or is taking control, be astute to those dynamics and be ready to take protective or prophylactic steps.
1: Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Uh, The next point he raises in subparagraph three, and this resonates with what we've been discussing before, Jenny, in all cases instructions should be sought by non-leading, in other words, open questions. And his honour gives some helpful examples. Let's drill down on them. Who are your family members? In other words, invite the client to uh, identify who is on his or her family tree.
1: Yes, I think I think that's a really great way of asking that question because it goes directly to one of those limbs of the Banks and Goodfellow test. Do you understand who might be expecting to benefit under your will? Um, but it also will alert you to who might be potential family provision applicants if they're not then going to benefit.
2: Exactly. And I I think it's probably uh, universally accepted now that advising a client who wishes a legal practitioner to draw a will for them includes alerting them to family provision legislation Mm. uh, and even perhaps going beyond that to asking them to consider uh, when giving instructions about their dispositions, uh, the impact of those dispositions on people who might be eligible to make a claim. So it's important information to elicit in any event. Um, It would be wrong, for example, to say, well, uh, your wife told me that you have three adult children from your first marriage.
1: Let Uh, me check that I've got their names right. (laughs) Yes, yes.
2: So so, so give them a chance to tell their story and if they're faltering or having difficulties, it's not fatal to their capacity to make a will but, again, it should alert you to approach with caution and be super cautious and super diligent about taking notes. Other examples are inviting them to reveal their assets um, and if their response was, well, look, I'll leave that to you, um, I would have thought that's a red flag. Um, Most people know what they're worth, crude and vulgar as that sounds. Like people in Sydney always know what their house is worth. Um, Most people have a pretty good idea of what they're worth. Um, So if they can't tell you what their bounty is, Mm -hmm. um, that's another uh, problem which may or may not go to capacity. It's certainly a relevant consideration. Uh, And then I think obviously you ask them who they want to provide for, uh, but then I think this is a terribly important question. Why have you chosen to make your will in that way? Mm. Why are you instructing me to um, depart from uh, your previous will and include or remove somebody from participation in your bounty? Mm. Obviously the question's... And the answers should be carefully noted.
1: Yes. Um, I don't the know law what... will cover file note message yet again. I mean, personally, <laughs> I find it very difficult to have an engaged conversation with somebody and be writing down every mm. word that's said. Mm. Um, so I think there's nothing wrong with asking the client's permission to record mm. the interview and then transcribing it later. I think that's a great idea. Ideally, if you've got the resources in your office, you bring somebody else along and they can be the note taker while you're engaging with the client. That's another way of approaching it.
2: Oh, well, that's interesting. It's something I've often thought about because a frequent uh, cross-examination approach of legal practitioners in testamentary capacity cases is to grill the solicitor about precisely when the file mm. note was made. Mm. And often, of course, a solicitor would take rudimentary shorthand file notes and later that day or even the following day yeah. either dictate... But a, hopefully
1: not six years later. <laughs> hopefully not six
2: years later. But they would embellish, and by that I don't mean falsify... But, but they would, fill out. They would fill out a yeah. rudimentary file note based on their... Recollection, as well as the rudimentary, and we all know
1: how faulty recollection can be,
2: and how a good cross-examiner can make more headway than probably is fair, but can still make headway out of that. Suddenly, it looks like the solicitor did not make a contemporaneous file note, Mm. but one that was twelve or twenty-four, even more hours or days later. So I can see recording might have a place. Yeah.
1: The other thing to remember is that everybody these days carries a mobile phone and that mobile phone can be used as a recording device. Well,
2: quite. Yeah, quite. so it's
1: um, yeah, it's not good enough to say you don't have the equipment anymore.
2: <laughs> no, that, 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 that's very true. Uh, the other uh, point uh, that is made, and this is almost put in a mandatory way, Justice Quint says Subparagraph 4 of paragraph 107. In the case of anyone, little a, who is over 70.
1: Oh my goodness, 70 seems very young to me. Well, it just <laughs> seems
2: extraordinary to me that that ought, or, or not extraordinary, but I, I think that's uh, not of itself something I would call a red flag. No. Uh, it's a little ageous to assume yeah. that suddenly at 70. You're a bit wobbly. Yeah. Um, I think that might be the statutory retirement ages for mm-hmm. New South Wales Supreme Court judges. So that might be why it was on Justice Quince's horizon. There are many, many barristers yeah. at the bar practicing in this And 70s I suppose and if
1: you've got to draw the line in the sand somewhere.
2: Yeah. Even so, uh, I think it's important not to be ageist in your approach to clients. Again, we uh, afford them. A presumption of capacity uh, they are coming to see us in circumstances where they're exercising freedom of testation mm-hmm. and client autonomy uh, is 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 something that's important and to, to uh the danger is that you start to patronize yeah. I think but uh
1: so we've got over people 70 over 70 is a
2: red button or a red flag if the client or prospective client is being cared for by someone or resides in a nursing home or other uh, kind of care institution, um, uh, his honour indicates that there should be uh, inquiries directed not only to the client but the client's carer or the staff at the nursing home or facility, whether there are any concerns about capacity. And his honour goes on to say, including concerns about capacity resulting from any diagnosis, behaviour or medication that the client might be on.
1: I mean, I think one thing that his honour doesn't say here is that you also need to be aware of your obligations of confidentiality um, and you wouldn't be able to raise those Issues with a carer or a care manager, unless you had the client's consent.
2: Well, quite. Um, and, ha-
1: and what's the what is the value of the client's consent if it turns out that they they are suffering? Well, that's a nice catch things. twenty-two. Yes.
2: Jenny. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly you can ask those questions of the client. Yes. Uh, in your conference, and uh, I remember in the uh, Lady Macarthur Onslow litigation, uh, when I was acting for Lady Hobhouse, something that emerged in the evidence in that case was Lady MacArthur Onslow's own insight into her cognitive impairment. Mm. She was actually consulting a neurologist about her memory deficits. She was actually talking to her family uh, and carers about her concerns with respect to some kind of onset of some kind of dementing illness. Mm. So, for example, if your client revealed that they had memory problems, on one view, that's a worry, but on another, if they have insight into that, uh, that could well mean that they still have the capacity to make the will.
1: Yes, and, in fact, you've made the point to me before that understanding that you can write a document that determines what happens to what you own when you die is probably something that's fairly fundamental and might be one of the last things that a person who has diminishing capacity loses.
2: I think that's exactly right. So, uh, again, in an ideal world, of course, what Justice Quince is suggesting uh, would be of great assistance, not only to the legal practitioner uh, when he or she has to decide capacity, but uh, if that information is gathered, it can be used uh, later on as well.
1: Mm. So the final point that Kuntz makes is if if there's some doubt about the client's capacity, then you really need to go back to those open-ended questions again when you present the draft will to the client for for execution. Don't just read the provisions to the client. L- look at them nodding and get it signed. I, I,
2: I think that's absolutely critical. It, it's, it's like uh, being doubly safe. Yeah. To have asked open questions to elicit instructions and then with the document in front of the client, invite the client to say what the document means Mm. to you, Mm. uh, is a pretty good way of being able to satisfy yourself as a legal practitioner that your client knows what's in that document.
1: Yeah. So I think the Ryan and Dalton case, you know, whether we think the bar is set a little high or not... um, that postscript that Quince has included is very useful for pr- practitioners to have an, a sense of what standard is expected of them. But um, the second case that we're looking at today I think is, is also really important to bear in mind, and this is the case of the estate of Beryl Lee, Horden, Homersham and Carr. And we won't go through the facts in that case, although um, just to outline briefly that this was a case Where the client wanted to make a will favouring somebody who had previously been her cleaner. The solicitor asked a series of open ended questions, as you would expect, to establish capacity, wanted to know why she was no longer leaving her estate to her niece as she had under previous wills. The client Said that the niece had disgraced herself and didn't deserve anything, but really declined to expand on that. The solicitor went ahead and prepared the will. After Mrs. Horden died, the niece contested the will on the grounds of lack of capacity and was successful, really, on the basis that Mrs. Horden was suffering from a delusion that she had disgraced herself, <laughs> that the niece had disgraced herself. And delusions are an interesting thing in a testamentary capacity scenario, aren't they? Because you can have somebody who suffers from a a serious mental illness with paranoid delusions, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't make a will.
2: Well, indeed. It it highlights uh, the distinctive nature of the testamentary capacity common law test in Banks and Goodfellow. Uh, Delusions are okay. You can have pixies in the back of your garden... But it's if the delusion impacts on the provisions in your will, in other words, if your delusion is that someone who would have a moral claim on your bounty has grown horns and is dancing along with the fairies in the back of the garden, mm. then it's a material delusion because it's impacting uh, on Your testamentary intentions. But if it's a benign delusion that has nothing to do with the provisions in the will, you're allowed to have them uh, and the court will still conclude that the testator had capacity. I mean, what's interesting about uh, the Horden case is that the solicitor in Horden's case gave a great deal of direct evidence and was cross-examined about the circumstances of the taking of instructions and the execution of the questioned will, just as that evidence was critical in uh, Ryan and Dalton. In Ryan and Dalton, I think it's fair to say that Justice Kunz thought there were some shortcomings in Ms Dalton's approach to her task. And of course, the will that Ms Dalton was championing was not probated. In the Horden estate, it appears that Justice Robb thought that the solicitor in that case, Mr Brax, who'd been practising since 1963, by the way. Right. So he knew a little bit about wills. He'd have done a few if he'd been practising since 1963 continuously. The judge... Took the view that Mr. Brax had done pretty much all he could do yeah. to satisfy himself as capacity, but nevertheless found against the will that Mr. Brax's evidence was adduced in support of. Mm. So, uh, and that's
1: because there was a delusion that impacted on. Well, you? yeah. Uh, in
2: fact, it's interesting. Justice Rob didn't try to avoid getting too hung up on the technical psychiatric definition of mm. delusion. What he did was say, look, possibly it was a delusion, but the psychiatric definition of an insane delusion is a fixed and incorrigible false belief that flies in the face of objective facts. And there was not enough evidence to show that the deceased in Horden's case had a fixed and incorrigible false belief, but the evidence did show that there was no foundation
0: Mm. for her
2: belief that the niece had done something inappropriate and that went to her capacity to weigh up claims on her bounty and it suggested she had some kind of disorder of the mind, which, of course, I think is the final limb of the Banks and Goodfellow test.
1: So, Mr Brax, the solicitor, there was an attempt by the lawyers for the niece to suggest that he had acted improperly in preparing this will.
2: Oh, I think they made
1: forthright submissions to that effect. But but I find this a very heartening decision from Justice Robb, who really acknowledges the difficult position that a solicitor's in when they're asked to make a will for somebody who apparently has a reason for doing what they want to do.
2: Well, look, I I think Mr Brax actually came out of this with a gold star on his forehead. (laughs) Because, of course, one thing Mr Brax did do just to quickly advert to what I think is a relevant fact before we look at the gold star paragraph in the judgment, Mr. Brax became aware that just a week or two before he took instructions from Mrs. Horden for the purposes of preparing her will, that a geriatrician had attended upon Mrs. Horden at her home, and the geriatrician had attended upon Mrs. Horden, for the purpose of a report directed to a financial management hearing at the Guardianship Tribunal. But Mr Brax became aware of that. He did just what Justice Quince would have had him do, which is contact Dr Beveridge and, in effect, say to Dr Beveridge, hey, I'm taking instructions from Mrs Horden from a will. I'm aware that you've seen her. I'm aware that you had some reservations about her capacity, though the doctor wasn't assessing testamentary capacity. And as a result of the discussion between Mr. Brax and Dr. Beveridge, which is reproduced in the judgment, Mr. Brax proceeded. Dr. Beveridge did not make a conclusive assertion of lack of capacity. So, in the context of all of that, Mr. Brax really did all that he could possibly do. And mm-hmm. if I might read out that paragraph, it's in paragraph 205 of Justice Robb's judgment. It is not part of the professional duty of a solicitor to ensure that his or her client has testamentary capacity so that any will made by the client is valid. The solicitor is not an insurer for the validity of the will, but can only act with reasonable diligence. Where, as in the present case, a court later finds on all of the evidence that a client who suffered at the time from moderate to serious dementia was in fact actuated by some false belief concerning the entitlement of an existing beneficiary under an informal will and the existence of that delusion, even if not insane, uh, vitiated the client's capacity, the responsibility for that outcome should not be laid at the feet of a careful solicitor.
1: Mm -hmm. So the message that we're getting really is that, if you're careful and you exercise reasonable diligence, then you will not come in for criticism from the court. And I think both of these cases give us a really good idea of what the court expects from solicitors when it comes to assessing testamentary capacity.
2: Well, well, well they do. The suggestion in Ryan's case was that perhaps a little more could have been done. Mm. Uh, the suggestion in Horden's case was that probably all that could be done was done, but in the end it wasn't quite enough to get the questioned will over the line.
1: Yeah, but that um, didn't reflect badly on the solicitor
2: it, at all. It did not. It yeah. did not. Yeah. So I think solicitors, uh, where there are some doubts, uh, probably, and I don't know whether Law Cover has a different view about this, but where there are some doubts, so the solicitor c- cannot be. certain one way or the other, I think you make the will would be my suggestion and if the court has to ultimately decide, well, if you've taken careful and diligent file notes and you've asked open questions and you've made all the reasonable queries you can as to the cognitive impairment, if any, of your client, you've discharged your duty.
1: Yes. Hmm. Yes. No, I think that's absolutely the right message that you shouldn't be denying a client an opportunity to make a will because you've got some doubts about capacity? I don't think so. If they're able to give clear and cogent instructions, um, then you just take very good care and good file notes.
2: And I think, Jenny, if you did deny the client the opportunity to make that will, you might be looking down the barrel of an action by the disappointed beneficiaries who didn't receive something from the will you refused to make.
1: Yes, although I can't think of a case where that's happened. Anyway, thank you so much, Martin, for coming along today. It's been lovely to talk to you.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by LawCover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date. For cases and references mentioned in each podcast, visit
1: lawcover.com.au.